Welcome to the Troutman Sanders Battery and Storage Podcast. I'm your co-host, Cliff Sakura, And I'm Bill Durasmo. In this podcast, we will interview battery and storage experts, industry thought leaders, Cliff. We want you to hear the unique perspectives that we hear from industry veterans and how they're deploying this new and very exciting technology into an industry that wasn't particularly exciting for most folks just several years ago. But you know, the focus of this podcast is going to be on the people, the thought leadership. We're not necessarily going to get into the weeds on technical issues, but we're going to focus on the transformation of the resource fleet and how storage fits within that transformation. We're going to get into some of the cutting edge regulatory and policy issues. We're going to talk a little bit about how you finance and deploy these assets, how you seek cost recovery. Are you going to look at on balance sheet or off balance sheet? We're going to talk about some of the planning issues associated with these devices. And in addition, there are numerous issues associated with operating storage resources once they are deployed. What sort of products can they provide? How will those products be priced? Will they be priced in front of the meter? Will they be priced in back of the meter? Will the two dovetail with one another? What is the future of solar plus storage, microgrids, and environmental issues? On the surface, one might say that batteries are an environmental benefit, but not necessarily. Accordingly, we look forward to bringing you thought leaders, folks who have been in the industry for many years and are dealing with an assumption change, a major transformational change regarding the physics of the business. Electricity can now be stored. This is an exciting time. We hope you join us. Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to the Troutman Sanders Battery and Storage Podcast. Um, welcome once again. Today, we are extremely lucky to have with us um, Mr. Mike Hopkins. He is the CEO of Bakken Midstream, and he is also lead director of Plus Power Energy Storage. And uh, he is uh, uniquely situated to talk about storage in general and batteries in particular. Uh, Mike, how are you today? I'm doing great, especially since I'm on this little podcast with you all. We really thank you very, very much for uh, for coming on and taking the time. Um, and I was kind of telling my my partner here, Bill Derasmo, who's with me as well. Hello, everyone. Um, Bill, um, I was telling him it doesn't know Mike, but I said Mike is somebody who, if we were going to um, uh, start designing the Mount Rushmore of storage, Mike would be one of the the, the, the four uh, folks who we'd put up there, I know, at, at least. So... Um, <laughs> Hey, Cliff, Cliff, I'm not, I'm, I'm getting on, but I'm not, I'm not dead yet. I'm not sure I'm liking this imagery of the dead, the dead guys up on Mount Rushmore. Oh, oh I hope not. <laughs> oh, but that, you know, that, 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 that just shows you're one of the founding fathers of the, <laughs> we're getting it ready. You know, that's right. I didn't think about it that way, but you know, but, but you know, Mike, in my Mount Rushmore, we got live people there. So it's a, I have a different concept of Mount Rushmore. All right. All right. All right. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, thank you. I'll, I'm gonna. I'll, okay. I'll take it your way. Thank so, you. um, talk to me about um, the gas business. Um, you started as a gas lawyer um, in Canada. Um, you're Canadian, and that's awesome. <laughs> and uh, glad glad to have that perspective. Um, talk to me about kind of how you got into being an energy lawyer, 
what the world was like when you started in Canada. Did any of the gas storage economics work concepts kind of play over to what you're seeing today in batteries and then kind of what you were doing with ice energy, which we'll talk about later? I'd be happy to. So I had the, the good fortune of finishing school and becoming an attorney, joining the Bar Association uh, up in Alberta in 1985, which you all will know was the year Canada deregulated the natural gas industry. So it personally, that was, that was a great time to become a lawyer when there was this whole new field that literally nobody had any experience. So I had the benefit of just dropping into this brand new area. Uh, my inexperience didn't matter because nobody else had any experience. And I was, I'd say, cliff taken with it from the outset. I became a regulatory lawyer. That ended up being like for all of one year, my first year or maybe two as a lawyer. Um, learning the, I'd say, the, the regulatory side of the, of the emerging natural gas industry in Alberta and in Canada, working a lot with U.S. companies that were on the, uh, the export side. They wanted to import natural gas now that was available, mostly for power production. What I saw, and by the way, my, I became, I'd say, quite taken very quickly with those type of players, with the independent power producers. Uh, I was quickly more interested in what you do with the natural gas as opposed to how do you get it out of Canada and that regulatory export side and became very interested in, uh, say, project development and how do you put the pieces together for these natural gas projects. There was a variety of them, not just power, but power figured very prominently at least in my career. And uh, at the time, and it was, I'd say, a very interesting time as well in the evolution of the natural gas industry in Alberta, is you were still seeing a tremendous flaring of natural gas in Alberta. There was very little um, local consumption of natural gas in Alberta. Uh, the infrastructure that was there was designed mostly to get the gas out and move it to the petrochemical industry in um, Eastern Canada. So producers, and I'll say the whole province of Alberta as a province rich in natural gas resources was not getting very much for that natural gas. And certainly in 1985 with the deregulation, yes, that opened up new markets, but prices were extremely depressed. And part of what was reflected there was there really wasn't much of a, a real natural gas industry in, in Alberta, certainly not what I call like a value add one, where you're trying to get all the value of the natural gas where it's being produced, as opposed to being a, you know, an exporter of raw commodities. And I was, I had the, uh, the pleasure and the great experience of being part of working with the companies, working with the province of Alberta as they evolved and they invested in value-add natural gas infrastructure of all kinds, including, yes, gas storage. Um, you know, there was not, not a lot of gas storage when it wasn't really worth anything. There's no reason to store something that doesn't really have any value or any prospect of value. But as the value-add natural gas industry evolved in Alberta, and you started to see things that they didn't have before, like um, fractionation to extract the liquids. You started to see petrochemical companies move in into Alberta. And you have today the what they call the Alberta Industrial Heartland, which is a multi, I think at this point it's tens of billions of dollars of industry 
all based on natural gas that's moved into Alberta and is a, a, a sort of a, a counterbalance to what otherwise would basically be a purely raw commodity export province in Alberta. So that was my that was my background there, and not to jump around, but uh, after a, a whole career outside of that natural gas industry and in the energy storage world, I've ended up back in this natural gas world with Bakken Midstream and North Dakota and seeing this uh, crazy similarity, almost exactly reliving what I saw in Alberta, where the circumstances in North Dakota are almost identical to those that existed in Alberta when I first showed up in Alberta. But that's another story. Alberta. Wow. Yeah. That's another story. No, but that's, yeah. And, and, and I, I want to hit that. Um, absolutely. Because, you know, I, part of it to me, the question is where is gas going generally, you know, and is it going to play a role um, in the future of our energy, you know, policy in the United States? So I want to hit that. And I also want to come back to kind of what you see the niche as for Bakken. But um, just taking a step back for a minute, I mean, there have been a number of different regulatory and market transitions in energy. And you were talking about the one in Alberta and the deregulation of of gas and essentially creating the gas business there from the ground up. Uh, Forget for a minute about new technologies and development. What lessons can you teach folks about regulators and how to get them educated and what is the best way to communicate to them what the right thing is to do in addition to being the right thing for your company and what you think is the future. Is that it's a $64,000 question. <laughs> well, and then let me add one little thing to that too for, for the purpose of, the, of this podcast which about storage is just what lessons might we be might we be able to apply from what you saw in Alberta and then later on with respect to natural gas markets to the nation market for storage right exactly because there seems to be some differences of opinion in the way it all should roll out right so those are great questions so so let me take them on and uh, talk specifically about my experience with the regulatory regimes and what I think of as the importance of regulatory policy uh, and I can go all the way back to Alberta and I can come sort of to the present as to what we're dealing with because regulatory policy is critically important to energy storage if I go back to my, my first experience with the regulatory regime, and that was with natural gas, that was a case where there was a need, I'd say, to, to get things going in the right direction, to break the, the, the current situation in Alberta back in 1985, when they were really looking up and saying, this is unacceptable. We, we, we can't be getting virtually nothing for this natural gas resource. We've got to change things. But there was an existing condition there were existing incumbents. There was this existing gas infrastructure aimed at doing the opposite of what they wanted. So they needed to break that. Part of it was what we already touched on, which was to create new export markets, not just an export market to Eastern Canada, but to access all the United States. But there was a broader policy thing going on back then, much broader than just the, I'll say, the deregulation of the natural gas industry. There was actually a what I call a relatively aggressive policy uh, put in place, initiated back in the late 70s by Peter Lougheed, 
the then premier of Alberta, who became a partner of mine in my law firm, Bennett Jones. And, and a very interesting man you know, in a whole lot of ways and kind of a legend in Alberta. Um, but what he did was uh, he gave this famous speech about, kind of touches on what I was saying about Alberta is not going to stand by and watch its natural gas resources, well, I'll say wasted. We are not going to be a pure exporter of raw commodities because no resource rich place that kept just being an exporter of uh, raw commodities ever prospered long-term in a sustainable way. And the interesting thing, guys, is that I, I know Peter Law, he uh, knew him when he was alive and at, at that time, it, and he was the head of the conservative party, which means what it says, which is a party of conservatives. And within that party, he was known as, I'll say, in, on the libertarian wing of the conservative party. So by no stretch of the imagination was this a, uh, a government interventionist kind of a person. It was the opposite. He's firmly believed that government should do absolutely no more than is necessary to ensure the efficient functioning of markets. But what he looked at was there was simply this unacceptable condition, which was the, the, the captivity that he felt his province of Alberta had. And he had to do the, I'll say, the minimum necessary to break that. And for him, the minimum necessary was actually quite aggressive. It was, uh, in effect, undermining existing contracts that Eastern Canadian uh, petrochemical companies had put in place with Alberta companies, and basically saying uh, those can be uh, those can be abrogated if there's an Alberta company that wants to do petrochemicals in Alberta, which was a shocker. And I think you'd agree. Uh, as regulatory lawyers, that kind of thing doesn't happen very much. But his view was you had. Yeah, well, you better you better it better pay off if you make the bet. right? Yes. And you and you I mean, you, people are people are going to people are going to look at doing business there a different way after that happens. And, you know, they did. So he, it obviously was a bet, but the bet paid off in that what happened was they literally created, you know, that is the Canadian petrochemical industry now. It is Alberta. It's not certainly not Eastern Canada. It is Alberta. And it worked. And as soon as that was set in motion, he dramatically, the, the province and regulatory dramatically backed off. And I'd say from that point on, regulatory policy in Alberta, as it relates to natural gas, has been about simply uh, doing what's required to uh, allow natural gas to be fully valued, to access its markets, uh, to not be wasted. That's what the policy is about. So I'd say it, it, as soon as possible, return to what I would think of as normal regulatory policy, which is about ensuring that resources are fully valued and the value is efficiently extracted. If I turn to energy storage, I see big analogies there because um, energy storage needed what it got uh, in California is where it got it. And that was it. It needed that bold move. It needed that jump start. It needed call it an intervention um, like just like renewables got with the renewable portfolio standard, where uh, in the case of renewables, regulators, at least in California and, and other places, they did not stand back and just say, well, let the market look after it. Let's wait until renewables get to uh, a market competitive price. 
and then they'll get the market share that they deserve based on their cost. Uh, that's not what happened. What happened was decisions were made by regulators, by government to say, we, we want to jumpstart this. We, because there's incumbents, there's, there's incumbents that make it difficult for renewables to get going. They're unfamiliar. They have some inherent disadvantages at the beginning. They need this jumpstart. The renewable portfolio standard was that for renewables. The Energy Storage Act in California was our version of that. That was the storage version of the renewable portfolio standard where there was a mandate on the California investor-owned utilities to, the way I would put it, stop studying this and start adopting it as an actual part of the grid. You know, no more of these 500, one, 500 kilowatt pilots, two megawatt pilot, make it part of the grid. And as you all know, and I witnessed this firsthand as CEO of Ice Energy, literally from the enactment of the Energy Storage Act uh, on, they, we went from an R&D market to a commercial market. There, there, there was created by government action a market, a, a tradable market for energy storage. And just like what happened with renewables and the renewable portfolio standard, it did what you might expect it to do. When a market was created, investment came in, competition came in, innovation was driven. And yes, the, just like with renewables, the cost of energy storage came down. The acceptance of energy storage became uh, not something that was being debated. Everybody just wanted it. It was just a matter of how much you want and over what period of time you want it. And uh, at this point, with that in motion, I don't know that we need any more uh, interventions, any more mandates. I think what's needed now when we talk about energy storage and regulatory policy is uh, regulatory policy that allows, that enables energy storage resources of all types, including batteries, but I'll say of all types, to be fully valued and to allow the value to be efficiently extracted. Because right now, that's really the issue. I don't think the issue is what I experienced in the early days of ICE Energy, where you're trying to convince some you know, people, you're trying to convince utilities that they should want energy storage and explaining why they should want it. And then you start talking about your own type of energy storage and why they should want that. I think we're, we're thankfully way past that. And we're down to the much more uh, tactical nitty gritty of how do you get storage from uh, you know, places where it's relatively easy, like California, to places where it's not that easy, where the market for it is not that clearly defined, where uh, there's clear barriers to actually having it valued. And I think as you touched on uh, earlier, or maybe it was a private conversation you and I had, Cliff, earlier about um, storage is a, is a very different kind of animal than other uh, distributed energy resources where it can perform all kinds of roles literally as a substitute. It can, it can be generation. It can be transmission. It can be... Uh, distribution, it can avoid distribution upgrades and feeders. It, it has all these different abilities. And yet, if you're going to have regulatory policies that say, well, only a literal transmission line can be actually valued as transmission, well, you're cutting off a value that's there and just saying by policy, it's not there. And that's, that's I think, the current battlefield we're in right now. 
And uh, if you're in the energy storage business, you know, I think you you pick your spots, obviously, when it comes to fighting those battles, because uh, there are some places where I think it's, you know, we're in a we're in a good place going in the right direction. And those markets are very enticing and those are good places to pursue. Uh, you've got other places in the country where, uh, you know, energy storage is really not even in the conversation. There's nothing in the way of a, in an energy storage market, even though it has value. Well, do you put time and effort into like that fight from scratch or do you focus on the, uh, the battles in play that you think you can win? But yeah, Mike, I, I turn it over to Bill in a second. But I, I remember um, when you and I worked together, I don't know how long ago it was, but the issue of the, 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 the T&D deferral uh, CapEx value stream, that was really new at that point. And getting people's heads wrapped around that was huge. And, you know, I think you've seen, you know, one of the one of the greatest success stories in that was Con Ed with their, you know, deferral in the Brooklyn Queens and that gave it, you know, as you said, legitimacy. But, um, you know, that whole value stream in and of itself was kind of an interesting new thing at the time. And now it's, of course, factored in. You see most of the RTOs looking at the non-wires alternatives. But Bill wanted you. Yeah, no, I, there was a lot in what you said, uh, Mike, and it was basically a couple couple of thoughts. You were talking about how, um, how things unfolded in Alberta. Then you were talking about California. Um, and it just struck me as the importance of state regulation um, as storage continues to emerge. Um, but it also strikes me as, you know, the, the continuing sort of disconnect. I think FERC was trying to get it right in Order 841. And I, I truly believe that FERC really wants a widespread deployment and rollout of storage resources. Um, but there continues to be what I see in the market is a little bit of a disconnect. It, it's it's sort of like in states where there have been aggressive storage mandates, and you mentioned California, now New York has um, aggressive goals as well as another example. Um, those, those states, the storage deployment's taking off. But then in other places, um, as you mentioned, it's not. And I, I, th- I think I see also, you know, there's no, there's really no, such thing as a pure play, wholesale, FERC-regulated market storage play. Um, and so I think slow, it... Slow develop, slow to develop. Yeah, I mean, I think the Order 841 rollout um, has been underwhelming in terms of response. I mean, I think if you have a state or a market where the market is under underpinned by some state mandates, you'll see deployment, but you just don't see people going out like you saw IPPs going out with pure wholesale plays. That's just not happening. So if, if you have um, any thoughts on why that might be or what can be done moving forward in terms of FERC's um, implementation of storage policy, I think that'd be yeah. interesting is, to hear. Is, is it necessary to change where we are? Well, I, I, I agree with what Bill was saying about I think that FERC is going in the right direction. I think, Cliff, yes, there absolutely is a role uh, of federal regulation and FERC specifically when it comes to enabling energy storage to penetrate markets uh, the way it should, which is just a function of having it fully valued and enabling it to capture its full value. And FERC, I think, however you want to look at it, is a part of that. I think as a, I'll say, uh, uh, both immediately and long term, 
to me that that the real I'll say battlefield I think is still at the state level. It is you know based on what you were just saying, Bill, about how where you see uh, aggressive state policy in favor of energy storage, uh, then you see a rollout of energy storage with or without uh, a positive FERC environment. Where you don't see that positive regulatory environment at the state level, you you literally see nothing happening, and. If I go to that that state level, I, to me, its importance is obviously that's sort of the entire behind the meter play is is about uh, state policy, um, and then to go to your point about capturing that that T and D value, as as I got myself deeper and deeper into energy storage, uh, yes, with ice energy. And we had the benefit just because we had been around a long time and we had worked with a lot of utilities, including a lot of utility pilots. We did get the benefit of working hand in hand with utilities, whether it was large investor owned utilities or it was um, municipal owned utilities, had the benefit of seeing how they did actually value energy storage. And it was a case that they were kind of working through it over time themselves, trying to figure out how do they really value it? How can they think about it? How broad can it be? And I'd say at the beginning, it really was all about an energy arbitrage play. And everyone was looking at energy storage as, well, it's an energy arbitrage play. And as you know, Cliff, that was kind of like a a complete stop for energy storage because that required, if you're going to say, yeah, let's, let's invest in this resource, but let's pretend that its only value is energy and not capacity. uh, And if it's going to avoid the need for all kinds of capital investments in transmission and distribution, uh, who cares? We're going to pretend that's not the case and make it justify itself just on the basis of its energy arbitrage play. Pretty much, you know, nobody could meet that bar in the energy storage industry, even, even with a quickly falling cost curve. Um, and once we broke that, and that has happened, certainly in California, but other jurisdictions as well. You mentioned New York. Absolutely. Once there was agreement and recognition and value given to the capital side, having looked at the way utilities run these models, in most cases, that, that T&D value was at least half the value of energy storage, at least half. So that's how significant it is. And it, and it, but that was before everybody spent hundreds of millions of dollars in smart grid though, right? <laughs> I mean, if I spend, if I spend four or $500 million in smart grid, right? I mean, it's, I, I just took away your, your storage, uh, CapEx deferral value. Well, uh, true. Although I think you're mostly joking there because I'd say that, that smart grid, that smart grid investment is ultimately where, I mean, if we, if we jump from what's happening today, to where this is going to go in terms of the grid long term, um, and I don't, and, and it will be long term. It's certainly not naive enough to think this is going to happen, you know, over the next ten years because it's not. But longer term, I think we we are going to a place where uh, energy store and energy resources, central or distributed, will be fairly valued. I think we're getting there the ability to extract the value will be uh, efficient and doable. So there'll be this very levelized playing field. And I, I have seen one example of that, and now I think there's more, 
But the biggest contract we ever got at Ice Energy was the 26 megawatt contract with Southern California Edison. That was a result of a, uh, an all resource uh, RFO. And the first time in my career, that was back in 2014 when they did that, the first time in my career, Cliff, that I saw a utility literally look at every type of energy resource, whether you're talking about generation, demand response, energy efficiency, energy storage, uh, combined heat and power, looked at every type of resource and came up with an algorithm that more or less uh, put everyone on the same playing field and gave everybody, whatever your resource type, the benefit of whatever capital avoidance there was, capital deferral there was, energy arbitrage, it, it levelized that playing field. So I think that's, you know, that part's happening, but what we're going to see next and over time will be this, I'm going to say that the physical change in the grid, the the way the grid is operated, the, the management of the grid, the change in that, which to me is going to be a an evolution, probably not a revolution, but an evolution from that central plant concept, the design that we've had forever, to much more of a, a mesh mesh network design, where yes, you can have large facilities, but you can also have small and distributed. And that it's ultimately, I think what I see is you will it will be common for a regular home to be energy independent to manage its own load with energy storage um, it'll be common for businesses and the grid will physically be changing away from that centralized design and moving to this call it mesh network idea and everybody's roles will be changing as well, where, you know, if you're a homeowner and you actually can generate all the power you need for your home and you can store that and you can manage it, then your connection to that grid or network or whatever you call it is more voluntary. And you're looking more for what value you can get from participating in that, that network or that grid, which is like a whole new, I think that's a whole new business line of how do all these increasingly independent uh, loads, uh, how do they participate efficiently in, a, in the grid of the future? Obviously utilities, and I know they're, they're thinking about this now and have been for a while. What does it mean to them? You guys in you know, New York has definitely been, I'd say, a real driver towards just saying, look, utilities of the future are going to be very different than utilities of today. And their role has to be completely rethought much more in terms of how do they become, you know, not so much the, the monopoly that just is there because they're the monopoly and they're the only ones that can do what they do to more of a, what value can they provide their customers who are for the first time, you know, in history going to be, genuinely energy independent without being mountain men you know, off the grid. Um, they're going to, yeah, they're, they're going to be uh, like I am at my home. I'm pretty much there. I, I am a customer of the utility, but between uh, solar and storage and energy management systems, it's so close to being uh, living exactly the way I live on grid and doing it off grid and then the being connected to the grid naturally becomes much more of a question of well what do i get out of it 
And uh, I think there's gonna be lots of smart entrepreneurial people and lots of incumbents that are going to, that are kind of jumping to that. And how is that gonna work as when the grid starts to be reconfigured, how do I get in on that business? And I think pretty much every utility in the country is thinking, well, what does that mean to me? My, my customers are not my customers because I'm a monopoly. My customers are just going to be there for me if I am providing value for my grid. Well, Mike, you just summed up basically the, my past three and a half years. Um, okay, I'm done now. <laughs> but no, that, 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 that was an amazing summation. No, I, I've been through that exact – we've been through that exact kind of thought process and a lot of those points are ones that that we've come to the hard way i'm sure you have as well but three things in terms of um that i kind of want to either highlight have you elaborate on the first one is you know just a little bit from when i was getting back in the business and just starting um i started at FERC in 1989 so it was right about the time when uh, market-based rates were um starting to be filed at the agency, IPPs, gas-fired, um, you know, combined cycle turbines were kind of modular more than they were the, you know, nuke and coal. And, and so one of the things that was critical was the concept of market-based rates and sort of taking the regulatory reins off the price. I want to kind of make the point that here, interestingly enough, we are depending on a process in which regulators nudge, help, set this weird little entity called an RTO or large entity called an RTO, set prices for a whole bunch of products that 30 years ago, 40 years ago, we didn't even know we had. Um, so the second thing I've got, though, is the whole notion of how California, I think, and potentially in New York, which we're going, is very different. And part of the reason is because of the distribution access um, regulatory framework that's there, the WDAT in California. And your point about meshing the grids, right, to me is critical. Um, and what states and incumbents do relative to that distribution access for these uh distribution, you know, di- distributed energy resources um, is, is absolutely critical. Um, and California is, of course, one of the leaders in that. Um, and, and, and so then the question becomes, right, what sort of uh, – an 841A, of course, spoke to that um, a few months ago and said, we don't care if you've got this thing called local distribution facility. If it's in the wholesale market, have a nice day, right? And that fits in with uh, the, the EPSA decision and Sandra Kagan saying – I'm not sure if you can get more interstate commerce than the speed of light, but uh. well, all I was going to say was that the 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 New York Rev proceeding, where they basically uh, want to look at utilities as essentially platforms for other people right. to play on, you know, plug and play. That that's that's really it struck me when you were going through your points, Mike, and then when Cliff was going through his, and so uh, yeah, I think I think the the storage and the on-site the on-site storage fits in. Uh, and microgrids fits in where with where the entire industry appears to be heading. Right. So, and then third point, and it's sort of a more macro version of your kind of self-gen, self-reliance. Um, you know, one of the one of the big debates that we've seen recently is is you know you saw it among a split in the commission regarding the capacity markets and you know energy prices in some states essentially saying hey wait a second you know i've got all my energy needs 
covered, and it's with Jen that I like, and I paid for it. Um, it's sort of a modern-day version of, hell no, I won't go into the pool, right? Now people are saying, well, whoa, whoa, wait a second. I planned for a clean future, and it's mine, darn it. You didn't. And, uh, oh, by the way, I'm not sure I like the pool so much anymore. Um, so on a individual residential customer level, not only are you potentially seeing self-reliance, but maybe the big grid isn't necessary when you start to devolve. Well, and, and, and the New York com- – the, the complaint that was just filed at FERC, but it involved the New York market, is now the next step in that fight over local resource planning versus these regional markets. And in the New York complaint, um, the the uh, state regulator, the state commission and NYSERDA are basically saying, look – all storage resources should be exempt from all of this competitive screens uh, on the supply side that New York, the New York ISO implements. So, and FERC, uh, the complaint was just filed, so it'll be interesting to see what FERC does with it. But it just seems to be the latest iteration um, in in all of these battles where the states basically want to take control over their resource future. And you know, as you as you pointed out, um, the future role of utilities in the industry is more and more towards self reliance and local control. Yeah, but I mean, th- these are all great points you guys are bringing up, and it it's when you were joking, Cliff, about your work is done. It's thinking, you know, really, we are like we are we are like we are like in the first inning here, um, because as you were laying as you were laying out. Um, while I think New York Rev has been a great process, it's got a long ways to go, and there's a lot to work through there. And when I you, you touched on, yes, you know, an individual home can be independent, and they'll have their own you know desires and preferences when it comes to do I want to be independent, do I want to participate. You were touching on, I think, a, this is a really big issue. I don't think we've got into, which is we did talk about different states that are at different places. But when we start talking about, oh, yeah, let's just like make it all, uh, you know, this perfect market where everything is on a level playing field. The reality is um, it won't be quite that because in the same way that a, you know, an individual consumer will be physically able to be completely independent if they want to and just be a voluntary participant in a grid or network if that's better for them. At the state level, it's very plain and you guys are in this all the time that you have states that are making the decision that they don't actually want um, everything valued the same way they'll want to like in california say we don't want natural gas generation period there's lots of states that have you know some time ago said we don't want coal so um we don't want anything to do with any market or pool that has that going into it, even if it's not coming from us. And that that's going to be a big issue in the same way you've got parts of the country that um, look very skeptically at renewables and are quite wedded to fossil fuel based. Um, and that's, I think that's just a, a whole other thing that gets sorted out. I don't know how it gets sorted out, um, but that's a, that, that is, that's something I have seen firsthand, the, the quite radical differences, uh, from state to state when it comes to not just how they see markets operating and how do you value things, but actually just making decisions. I don't want that type of resource. You know, I think coal would be the most prominent example of, but nuclear has had 
you know, there are parts of the country that absolutely do not want nuclear full stop, regardless of, of statistics or any arguments. They just, they don't want that. And uh, coal has gone through that. Natural gas has gone through that. Um, even though the reality, of course, is there is a very significant amount of power being generated in the United States from nuclear, from coal, from, from natural gas. I think the one that will continue the longest, I think, will be natural gas, just because I think natural gas has a, um, it has a, we have a need for natural gas, a, a very fundamental need for natural gas that goes beyond uh, power generation and has to do with the fact that so much of what we <laughs> use and need every day, like the my phone that I'm using right now, like my computer that I'm looking at, uh, is derived from products that consist of products made from natural gas. So we, we have this need separate from power. And then in the power context, uh, you, you have the, I'd say, the important role that natural gas has played as a way of firming wind and firming storage, and I'd say has has helped and will continue to help the penetration of the market by solar and wind by making up for their intermitt intermittency um, and, and giving time for uh, our business, energy storage, to, to catch up and to perform that role. But those are roles of natural gas that you I mean, that's really not the case with nuclear and that's not the case for coal. So it's it's easier to just say, if you want to, I want nothing to do with coal or I want nothing to do with nuclear, but um, you still do want your phone and you still do want your car and you still do want your the things that you need natural gas for. Let me put on my, my banker hat for a minute. Um, and my customer hat, which is actually in some respects they're the same in certain ways, um, believe it or not, I think. Um, as a banker, what would you tell me about the future if my – one of my major concerns – a structured finance banker, okay? What would be the future for me if you say to me, well, storage is, is going to be huge um, as a resource – but the New York complaint that Bill talked about and others are kind of saying, you know, we just don't think this is a third-party type kind of resource. We think it kind of just needs to stay with the vertically integrated entity or a wires company. And yeah, we get it, but that's where the value is. Okay, so if I'm a banker and I'm sort of in the structured finance business, what kind of stuff do you tell me? Um, what, what do you tell me if I'm looking at prices from RTOs, right, as opposed to what I used to do, which was to model the forward curve of, you know, supply and demand of electricity and, and based on the spark, you know, spread in my – no, and what I'm, what I'm kind of – kind of okay, so, you know, what, what the prevailing prices for load following, you know, in PJM – you know, for example, because all of a sudden there's too many batteries, you know, or well, that's a risk. I don't know that I – how can I explain that to my banker? So it's a price issue. Um, and then from a customer perspective, I would say, am I getting the most value or are batteries going to give me value no matter who owns them? doesn't matter to me, right? Because one of the big issues in the IPP world when we were first getting involved in that was, well, it's a price issue 
It's a, you know, get in under the prevailing price, new tech, and get the incumbent out because the argument was they're mendacious, greedy, and bad people, you know, or maybe maybe you were on the other side of that, right? But do you see that here? I mean, I just see the, the, the issues being different as to the last one, but I do have an issue sort of with bankers and kind of saying, yeah, you know, you're just not going to get the same kind of PPA that you got. Like, it's going to be a different deal. But So uh, those are some things that I think folks want to hear from you or folks that are, you know, leaders. What are, what are, you, what are you thinking on those matters? Well, I'm talking to you and you're the, the structured finance banker. Um, I guess I, I'd start, Cliff, at the, at the most basic level before we get into I mean, how are these things financed and just make sure we're all on the same page about the fact that um, I believe we have seen enough to know that energy storage is here to stay, that energy storage is going to be a uh, simply a part, an important part of the grid, whether we're talking about its use as a, as a transmission asset, a generation resource, uh, right at the home, uh, behind the meter. However, we're looking at the different applications for energy storage. I don't think there's many people left that are saying, yeah, no, that's not gonna happen, which then gets to, okay, well then commercially, how, it ha- how does it happen? And I think that uh, then you really got to get into, well, what is the application we're talking about? Because I think that there is a, there is, there is, despite what we're talking about, about the changing roles of utilities, I think there is definitely going to be a role for utilities to be uh, adopting, investing in energy storage, the grid. I'd say that probably is not behind the meter, but I absolutely front of the meter I certainly can see utilities investing in energy storage and justifying it to their regulators as no different than building a transmission line or building a substation or building uh, the distribution feeders. Um, And they'll finance it the way they finance their other assets. And whether that's rate base or some other cost recovery mechanism, they'll, they'll be able to do that. If we're talking about the, not not them, we're talking about, I'll say developers, uh, independent developers, not utilities, then there's, there's two plays that I see there when it comes to financing. One is, well, there are opportunities to do, I'll say classic PPA type deals in the right situation where you're, you're in a market that's a functioning market and the energy storage has an application that is providing significant uh, T&D uh, deferral or elimination. Um, and I'll just use an example I'm most familiar with our, our Southern California Edison contract. It, it is, you know, without giving away the, the proprietary details, it is a, a classic PPA structure. And it was financed like a classic PPA deal, a project financing of a you know, of a PPA. Um, that's how that was structured. And the value that was provided allowed that to be this long-term, no one revenue stream with a utility credit um, behind it. And that's not unique. You know, there's, there's a lot of those out there. And I think there's going to be lots of opportunities out, 
you know, in, in states we're not even talking about yet, where there will be those opportunities to do those type of deals if you're, I'll call it a, a developer, like an independent developer, like Ice Energy was for itself or other companies that were using our technology and bidding it, or did those kind of deals with batteries, which certainly happen. Um, then there are the more, I'll say the more challenging ones where it's not, it's not almost, you know, a hundred percent underwritten by a PPA, but you're in the value stacking and you're needing multiple revenue streams. Some known, you know, you've got maybe a PPA, but it's not for uh, 20 years. It's for five years or 10 years. And it's not covering almost hundred percent. It might be, it's covering 50%. And so you're needing to get whatever there, maybe you're, if you're front of the meter, you're needing to project, uh, ISO revenues, wholesale market revenues, or ancillary services, and you're making projections, and you're basically, you know, part merchant plant. And can you finance that? Can you finance that on a project basis? I know you can, because I've certainly seen those. Not as easy as, well, it's all backed by a utility PPA, so that's a relative no-brainer. And then you get to the, I'll say, the place where there is no capacity contract, you're a merchant plant, in effect. It's a merchant project. And those happen. Those are happening right now. Now, those to me are not project financings. Those are usually being done by large energy companies that have an appetite for that. Like, say, Anel would be an example, but there's lots of others that um, actually want that, that merchant exposure because they are taking a view on the value of energy storage and where energy markets are, are, are headed and want to have strategically a position and think that that will be very lucrative. Even though, Cliff, if you're the structured finance, project finance lawyer, you're going to, or banker, you're going to hate that. You're going to want no part of that. It's, it's, it, I, you, you would say the truth, which is if you're thinking of that as a, as a classic project financing from a bank, that's unfinanceable. Nobody would take on that appetite. And yet you see in the market major, major players that are plenty smart about what they're doing, that are, are looking for that merchant exposure and see that as a positive, and that's where they want to invest their capital in energy storage. But they've got big balance sheets, right, Mike? They've got big balance sheets like your, like your company, right? I mean, or parent, right? I mean, in yeah, other words, if you're looking in that area, you've got the wherewithal because you see it as a long-term play and you're there because, hey, it could be X, it could be Y, but it's just like Mike said, we know it's going to be there. Um, but it seems to us now that's exactly. a big sheet, and, and that's a big balance sheet that's covering that, right? I mean, do you, to go out and do that prospecting and then also make sure that you're not making the market for other people, that's a big, that's a big balance sheet. So. In other words, it's interestingly, the economies of scale have come so far down, but it's still, I think, maybe a, a play for big guys is what you're saying in, on, in the long term. I think, I think that if we're talking front of the meter and we're talking about um, taking material merchant risk, whether it's the extreme of fully merchant or not the extreme, but, but there's material merchant risk in a project – then yes, I would say that is, that's the domain of the large balance sheets. Although oftentimes as, you know, Anel, the example with uh, plus power that I'm on the board of, that's a case where 
certainly plus power is not in and of itself a large company at all, but it's a very effective developer of projects for its financial partner Anel that has that balance sheet and has that appetite. And if we're talking about, you know, yes, you need a big balance sheet if you actually want to literally do these large merchant facilities, you know, that there's no one to my knowledge that that's all they're doing. Uh, and in the case of Anel, I'd say that's probably a very small part of their total portfolio that allows them to to do that kind of thing. So, um, and I'm just using Anel as an example. There's lots of other companies that are doing, you know, following the same. If you're a big energy company, uh, pretty much all of them, I think that I'm aware of, they want uh, they want part of their portfolio. Uh, to be storage, I believe that over time that that part of their portfolio will grow just because I believe energy storage is going to become a bigger and bigger part of the energy market. And some of that, I believe, is going to be merchant just because they can afford it and because it's probably, you know, at the right size of their portfolio, it's a it's it's a good calculated uh, bet that, uh, you know, should pay off if they if they don't go overboard. And I think they're not likely to go overboard. I think they're doing this in a very smart and calculated way that's also good for the industry because it's enabling a type of project that, that otherwise really wouldn't occur. And then the one thing I think we didn't get to, which is uh, if, if you're that uh, project finance banker, there, there's the there's a behind the meter. There's the more co the consumer market, whether you're CNI or whether you're residential. The CNI, I think... You know, in a lot of cases, either the company, the business themselves can invest in energy storage. And in some places like California, between uh, incentives and tax credits, if it's paired with solar uh, and time of use rates, you can just justify it as an internal investment. Or there's enough there that people that are actually in the business of financing CNI energy improvements uh, can provide financing that works for that. No, it's not really project financing, but but it, it it's effective financing. Kind of like the tax equity stuff, and the you know the yeah, which is the you know the kind of a let's almost a commercial bank kind of concept where you put it out there and over and over and over again for rooftop, you know, and they're small and um, but they but because of the taxes, right, and um, tax equity, it gets done and and. But they're small scale, and I think you have to have a lot of them for that. That's a sort of a different play, right? Absolutely. And then, and then you get to the smallest scale, which I think is the most challenging, even though it has amazing potential, and that's residential. You know, if we're if we're talking about the grid, most of the grid most of the grid is residential, um, and and I think this has been this has been historically a problem, and it persists to today that the biggest part of the grid is the residential load, and yet it's always been the most challenging for the grid uh, utilities specifically the most challenging to manage because uh, well a bunch of you know it, it's it's that smallest scale uh it's it's people that unlike businesses which commonly will have literally a person or a department focused on energy management um and is it's a business so it's their business to respond to price signals that they get from the utility None of these things are true of homeowners. You know, there some home, some homeowners aren't actually really having to pay for their utility bill, and some homeowners are so well to do that they don't really care what their utility bill is. So these are those are pricing problems that makes it difficult for you to incent the right behavior. Um, and there's also just the fact, Cliff, that 
there's nowhere near the number of options in terms of products, services, technologies available to homes that there are for businesses. You know, I think for obvious reasons, because businesses are receptive and interested in energy and energy management and energy costs, that's a really good market for people that want to produce and deliver those types of products and services. You know, I can tell you firsthand, having with ICE Energy being both in the CNI, well, utility market, CNI market, and residential market, residential has always been the most exciting in terms of potential, but has the challenge of you are generally not talking to someone that is really that interested or that up to date or that motivated when it comes to anything energy, unless it's like a no brainer or it's a, not a novelty, but you know, like Nest was very smart and effective about taking something that everybody knew what it was, a thermostat and rethought it, made it more valuable, but made it easy and, and actually made it something like cool, like a conversation piece that you would actually like to, when they were, when they first came out, people would think, I like to show that to my friends and neighbors that I've got something really cool, but it was so simple, so simple. That was the key to it, I think. Uh, one of the things that I think is interesting about what you were about the sophistication, um, and one of the things that I think is interesting is, I mean, people ask ah, smart grid, blah blah, but there really just is not the the visibility and control. I mean, I you know how many regulators I've talked to that have said. Well, you've got scat. No, you don't have scat necessarily, right? But some of those, a lot of those feeds, you can't really see anything. And so part of this is you're trying to devolve a market that's got buy cells and injection points and uh, withdrawal points like you do in some, you know, in the big grid. But you just don't have the, the, the visibility and the operability that you do in the large grid. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I guess suffice it to say – we got a long ways to go on a smart grid. We, we, the kind of grid we were talking about, that mesh network of the future, doesn't work without being smart. Um, and I think it's going to be beyond smart meters where I think we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence and all kinds of things that are part of, are part of, are part of other parts of our world, but you really don't see much of it in the electrical grid. And I think we will, but we are so far off of that now where you've got vast parts of the country that have old fashioned dumb meters and therefore there's zero visibility in terms of what's really happening and where you do have so-called smart meters. I don't think a whole lot is being done with them. Um, and, and for all kinds of reasons, some of them I think just didn't roll out the right way. Some of them, uh, just, I think, ran into political issues where people, yeah, there was more information and yes, you could do things, but there was limited appetite for, I guess I'll say, exposing consumers, exposing ratepayers to the real world. Like what does energy really cost in real time? Um, what is, what's really happening in the grid? That is the big bugaboo, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I get it. I, I get it. If you're if you're a regulator, um, and if you just go to the obvious and say, well, what if we just stop with all this, you know, transition and go slow, and let's just gather up all the information about how the grid really works. Let's let's expose to everybody, including a homeowner, 
the real value of energy in real time and it'll all work out great. Well, it won't work out great because there'll be some homeowner somewhere who opens up their utility bill and uh, maybe that person gets $10 because of how they were able to do things and another one will get $1,000 and have a heart attack because that's kind of the dis- that's kind of the disparity you would see if consumers were exposed to the actual you know hourly value of energy and what their behavior you know really did you, you would see <laughs> you know you would see if i go to my world uh, vice energy and which was you know inextricably connected with air conditioning well air air conditioning would be a classic example where Currently, people are completely, uh, I'd say, protected from what's really happening. You, you buy an air conditioner and you think, I bought a $5,000 air conditioner. Well, in a lot of places, sure, you bought a $5,000 air conditioner, but your operating of the air conditioner uh, imposes a cost on the grid that everybody else is paying for, unless you're controlling that. And um, there's a lot of things like that where you know people are... There's externalities, and I, I bring up air conditioning just because being in that world a long time, I, I've seen the growth of air conditioning, and I've seen the fact that it is a fundamental, I'd say, challenge and a problem to for everybody to figure out about how you can have something that's relatively cheap, uh, relatively cheap to produce, and is being produced in increasing quantities and being adopted in increasing quantities and in increasing places. Uh, places that never had it, like my hometown of Santa Barbara, when I moved here in 2003, it was extremely rare to see an air conditioner. And now, whether you believe in climate change or not, as a factual matter, it has simply become hotter in Santa Barbara in recent years, and air conditioning is no longer that rare. It's quite common. Um, and so th- this is, if you'll, if you'll get the growth of air conditioning, it has probably one of the biggest you know, externalities out there in terms of uh, what it costs the grid to deal with that load, uh, so, which is so far beyond what it costs a homeowner to buy an air conditioner. Yeah. And in some ways, right, I think I, we were talking about this a little bit. In some ways, that's it, it shows the genius of what ice energy was in a lot of different ways and is. Um, and, and, and w- because in some ways, like you were saying, it, it, the customer, it's better than Nest or kind of like Nest. Customers know air conditioners. They, they know what they are. They know that they cost a lot. They know that they add a lot of money to the bill. They know that they're, you know, they don't know that, like we know that they're the largest contributor to the, you know, to the system peak. Um, you know, and if you could just shave that system peak, right, we'd save all, our, all ourselves a lot of money. Um, you know, but I, but they see it and they go, oh, I know what one of those are. That's fantastic. Oh, you can put that in and it's going to, you know, work off the time of use rate. So just talk a little bit about ICE, Mike. And then I have to say we got to wrap because we're an hour here, but I would, we want to have you back, man, because this has just been fantastic. And there's a lot of stuff we haven't hit. There's a lot of issues we need to talk about. It just could go on and on forever, honestly, because this is, first of all, I've had a lot of fun, but um, I want to close by let, talk about ice a little bit because um, it's just, I loved working with you in that um, and it became successful and I'm just really excited for it in a lot of different ways. So talk a little bit about the company and kind of what the technology does for folks who don't know. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, Ice Energy has been and continues to be a great story. Definitely a pioneer in uh, distributed energy storage. Obviously, it's it's thermal energy storage, and it, the basic idea of Ice Energy was to uh, turn every air conditioner out there into a, an energy storage system, a thermal energy storage system, so that it would be a, a smart rather than a dumb air conditioner, and also a, a way to get a lot of energy storage. Uh, quickly and efficiently onto the grid. In terms of what we've achieved, I'd say we've certainly, I'll say, achieved uh, the, the technological proof, you know, the proof that uh, you can turn an air conditioner effectively into a thermal energy storage system um, and that that's reliable and simple and cost-effective. We have proven in terms of the business model that there is a utility market. We have got multiple utility programs and not just in California to show that not just, you know, could a person who buys an air conditioner embrace that idea, but that a utility could actually think of these um, smart thermal energy storage air conditioners as an actual utility resource, which for utilities and for ice energy, I'd say that was a, that was at least as challenging cliff for ice energy as the technology, you know, the, this is a technology with sounds simple, but it's got 16 patents associated with it in terms of like, how do you actually do this on a mass production, cost effective, efficient way? It, that was actually difficult, but more difficult than that, in my opinion, was getting that breakthrough of utilities, embracing it as a capacity product. This this thing on somebody's house or this thing on somebody's roof that's working with an air conditioner. And so I'd say the the last frontier for ICE Energy is going to be what we touched on before, this, this elusive residential market where our product, unlike the commercial market where our product is, I'll say, an ICE battery that's added to an air conditioner on the roof, our residential product actually kind of rethought the home air conditioner and replaces the home air conditioner. It's this hybrid system that sometimes it's working like an air conditioner, but sometimes its compressor is freezing water to enable that air conditioner to turn off and still cool the home. And great products of great. And is that part of load aggregation? What's that? Is is that load aggregation? Is that, or you, is, is that becoming a part of kind of load aggregation? Um, It, 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 or, you know, on the, or the residential. Absolutely. We have that program actually going on right now in Nantucket um, with homes and they're aggregated as a utility resource and they're controlled by the utility. And then we have another program going on right now, which is more just pure retail, which works in California because we call the system qualifies for the self-generation incentive program. If it's paired with solar and you're making the ice with solar during the day, uh, then you're getting ITC as well, and you've got time of use rates. And it actually works you know, quite well in terms of uh, charging, making ice with solar, uh, especially in places where the, the solar period is no longer the peak. It's actually where there's like excess solar, and your new peak is solar dissipates and people come home and turn everything on. Well, that's where if you've got your home ice bear, which I have at my home, you don't turn on your air conditioner. Uh, you were making ice with the, the solar I have during the period where there was excess solar and you're running on virtually no electricity while you're cooling your home. But the, the missing piece there, I'd say, is the, the time of use rates because incentives are not going to go on forever. 
Uh, we're not going to have ITC forever. We're not going to have S-chip forever. And what we really need to is some, I'd say, more form of, of recognition of the, the, the genuine differential value of, of energy. And the time of use rates we have in California, while they are going in the right direction, you know, we've gone from, if you're a residential customer, uh, used to be that there was no such thing as a time of use rate. Then we went to, you could opt for a time of use rate. Now we're headed to, you have to have a time of use rate. And the last piece, which I think is going to be, a, this will be a really challenging piece because it's, uh, it's uh, there will be public resistance to it, is these time of use rates, I believe, are going to increase in terms of the differential. It'll get wider and wider as it goes in the direction of the actual value, the, uh, the actual differential value of energy at different times. And that's that's kind of where you got to get to to make people really pay attention to, and make them have them make the investment in these products. Uh, we're, we're in the relatively easier stage now where there's sufficient incentives that if you can get their attention, they should be buying this because it's just a good investment. You know, it's it's a lot better than a treasury bill. It has a much better rate of return. <laughs> now, right. Rate of return. Exactly. Exactly. Mike. This has been fantastic. Um, I, really, we would like to have you back. There's a lot of other topics we want to hit. Absolutely. You've, you, uh, you've really done awesome, uh, hit a lot of fantastic topics, but honestly, we've just scratched the surface. There's a lot to talk about. So, But, but we really appreciate yeah, thank you, you coming very on our much. program and, and taking the time. Really appreciate it, Mike. My pleasure. I enjoyed it, and I'd, be, uh, I'd, I'd love to come back again. Awesome. Awesome. All right, and then, you know, we're going to have your, uh, if you do come back again, we're going to have Mike Hopkins' walk-up music. So you got to pick what kind of music you like, you know, and people will know when the music plays that it's you coming, you know what I mean? So between now and then, pick out the song. Thanks a lot, Mike. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast is not legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. Troutman Sanders does not make any representations or warranties, expressed or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Information on previous case results does not guarantee a similar future result. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal and other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission of Troutman Sanders.